0: Hello, and welcome to this week's Politics Jam, where we're taking an in-depth look at the topics and the week's news through a political scientist lens. Uh, I'm joined today by Mike. Mike, you there? Yep, I'm here. How you doing, Mike? Very well, thanks, Steve. And how are you? I'm good, Mike. I'm good. Now, Mike's going to be too shy to mention this, but Mike actually wrote a piece in the Independent this week on ethnic minority deaths and COVID and the government's response, which I uh, I highly recommend you give it a read. Uh, Mike, are you going to give us a dramatic reading on the pod at some point? <laughs> Maybe one day. Could we do it in the style of like Benedict Cumberbatch or Stephen Fry? I would really, I would really enjoy that, and I think our listeners would would too.
1: <laughs> Stephen, what are you like?
0: I know. And also today, more uh, we are joined by Maya Goodfellow, uh, an academic and author who I'm sure most of you are already aware of. He's written a, a brilliant book, "The Hostile Environment: How Immigrants Became Scapegoats." Uh, she's based at Soas. The book is a, a really good kind of description of the Kafkaesque setup of the UK immigration system. Uh, Maya, how are you doing today?
2: Yeah, I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And I can also say that I also read Mike's piece in The Independent and would also recommend people read it. I was I thought it was really good, uh, good, albeit depressing analysis of what is going on in the UK right now. So, um, yeah, I would I would echo go and read it.
0: Fantastic. And it's an absolute pleasure to have you, Maya. Uh, So today we're going to cover kind of three broad topics, the first of which is about immigration policy and specifically at the hostile environment, as Maya describes in the book. Uh, We're then going to move on to talk about views of immigration in the UK, and then finally talk a little bit about race relations in the US, given the protests and the killing of George Floyd. Uh, Mike, do you want to kick us off, mate?
1: Yeah, I guess a good place to start, Maya, is your book. As you even mentioned in the introduction, your book is titled Hostile Environment. Um, I, I've always been curious, like why is that the title you opted for? And could you explain to our listeners what the hostile environment is?
2: Yeah, I think that's a good question. Um, I suppose the first thing to say is that, um, I guess I'll start first by saying what the hostile environment is, and then I'll explain why the book is called that. And the hostile environment in its, I guess, contemporary form is um, a set of immigration policies that were largely introduced through the 2014 and 2016 Immigration Acts. So under the coalition from Conservative-led government. Um, and it, the aim really, as Theresa May, who was Home Secretary at the time, was to make life unbearable for people who didn't have the right documentation, people she called illegal immigrants. But actually, this is a, quite an unhelpful term in a lot of ways. Um, and what it, one of the main functions of the hostile environment is to make it near impossible for people without the right documentation to a- access basic services. So things like healthcare, things like housing, work, um, and maybe we can talk a bit about this in a bit but really we're seeing some of the worst effects of that during the pandemic and um it essentially turns public sector workers a lot of public sector workers into border guards I think that's something that's said a lot but is actually a very good way of understanding it and um if you want to read a bit more about it as well as reading the book Liberty, um, the human rights organization have produced a really good guide that explains how the hostile environment functions. And the way they kind of depict it is, is it's this, it's almost like this this thing that has tentacles that reaches into every bit of, of your life um, and stops you from being able to access a lot of these services that I've mentioned. Um, and in terms of why the book is called Hostile Environment. The book is about the history of immigration policy in the UK and I suppose one of the things I was thinking about a lot um, when I was writing it was although the hostile environment has this very specific form right now and we should look at the distinct forms of discrimination, dehumanisation that's going on in the UK at this moment and how that's impacting people, it would be wrong to think that the UK suddenly became a hostile environment for immigrants with with these sets of policies actually the uk has long been a hostile environment it's just that has looked slightly different is manifested slightly different in legislation the different forms of racialization that have kind of been produced um have shifted over time and so for me it was really important to say a lot of people are rightly right now angry about the hostile environment as it looks and we should be really interrogating that and you know we'd hope that more people actually were angry about that and wanted to dismantle it um but we can't pretend that things were fine before 2014 or even before 2010 things have in terms of anti-immigration hostility have it's incredibly deep rooted in the UK and so that that the attempt with the title is to say this has a much longer longer term history than just that only these particular policies.
1: I think that's a really good summation of the hostile environment, and I think one of the book, the things the book does really, really well is presents migrants as human beings. So we hear like quite a few stories from from different people who have to navigate the very complex immigration system in the UK. And you touched on it very briefly in in your answer just then about how coronavirus has complicated things. And I guess it'd be nice to to hear from you maybe how difficult it is to be a migrant in the UK and how coronavirus has complicated that. So I'm thinking of the, you know, recourse to public funds, which alarmingly Boris Johnson doesn't seem to have been aware of until last week. And the NHS surcharge, which myself and Jeevan have both been very, very critical of on the podcast.
2: Um, Yeah, I think it's really, really important to think about this. And I've actually spent the past two months interviewing people about their experiences um, during the pandemic. And I've been trying to track, I mean, many other organisations have done this too, but I've been trying to track what immigration policy is still in play, what has been suspended, what the government has partially done. in part because i think it's important to document it but also because i've been writing a new chapter for the book that looks at this um and from interviewing people from like you know talking to people who work in the field who are immigration lawyers the sad reality is although the government has done some things they have as you know with the nhs surcharge after a huge amount of public pressure um and campaigning from from migrants saying that, pointing out what this surcharge was doing they have suspended it for they've got rid of it sorry for nhs staff and care workers which i think is major and we shouldn't underestimate that the importance of that what that will mean for people's lives in terms of their material circumstances um but there is a but this almost encapsulates perfectly for me what the conservatives and what the government have been doing at this time of global crisis is the surcharge is still in play it still exists for everyone else for all other migrants Um, so including other key workers, right? And so um, what it means is a lot of people are still having to pay twice over for the NHS, literally because they were not born in this country. And so... For me, that shows us that although they've done some things, they've actually really pushed on with a lot of their policy. And so, as you said, there's no recourse to public funds. And so, although no recourse to public funds doesn't apply to things like the job scheme, doesn't think apply to things like furlough, it still is in existence for a lot of people who've lost their jobs and can't get state support, people who are not sure about their housing situation, people who are undocumented. Um, and, you know, I've spoken to people who uh, are really terrified of becoming destitute and living like on the small amount of savings that they have because they've lost their jobs during a global pandemic and there is absolutely no safety net for them at all. Um, but we also should recognise that the hostile environment, more broadly, is still largely in place. And so what that means is the government, for instance, have said, you'd think, right, in a global pandemic when the messaging is all about public health, you know, your own health is is the public health. How, our, our, how we act in society, we know. The things around self-isolation, the things around um, the lockdown, we know that we have a massive effect on the people around us, right? So you'd think that the government's first priority would be to make sure that everyone is able to safely access healthcare, and everyone is able to safely isolate without becoming destitute. So th- they have put people in a position where, Some undocumented migrants are saying, either I go to work and risk spreading coronavirus or contracting it, um, or I become destitute because there's no recourse to public funds. But there's also the issue of accessing healthcare, and so whilst the government have done things like put coronavirus on this list of exemptions, it's a, a list of um, diseases that are exempt. So if you go to to your local hospital, your local GP, you your data, they said, should not be shared. You should you won't be charged if you um, are being tested for, for coronavirus, and then if you have coronavirus. Um, But the problem with that is they haven't put a firewall up between the um, health service and the government departments, which is something we've done in Ireland. And so a lot of people who have been living in a country for the past 10 years have been hearing this message of you live in a hostile environment, you're not able to access basic services, are still too scared to go to their doctor, to go to their local hospital. And that is a major, major problem um, in terms of people's own health and then in terms of the public health. And so... What I would say is it's the hostile, the hostile environment and immigration enforcement more broadly is affecting people in a myriad of ways. Um, one other that's worth mentioning is if you are um, someone who is um, applying for asylum in this country or waiting on an asylum claim or has been rejected, you, under the government's existing rules, and th- which they've extended slightly under coronavirus, you will be en- entitled to around £37.75 pence a week, um, a week. And that's what people are expected to survive on. And so people are really struggling who are weighing on their asylum claim or who have um, put in an asylum application at a time when a lot of the services they rely on, like asylum support centres, their local community centres, local groups that um, people have set up to support one another, have really had to scale back their actions because of the funding climate, because of lockdown. And people are really, really struggling. And when Priti Patel was confronted with this at the Home Affairs Select Committee, when she was asked about this by someone saying people are going to become destitute because of this, we already know it's an issue. She said she hasn't seen sufficient evidence to raise the amount of money that people are able to get if they have put in an asylum application. And we already knew in 2018 that many people were becoming destitute who were trying to claim asylum in the UK. The evidence is already there. Um, and so I guess that's, that's quite a long way of me saying they seem to be quite wedded to keeping a lot of their immigration policy in play to the point where they've even issued new guidelines for landlords so that they are able to carry out the hostile environment checks in this new environment. So they've obviously thought about it. They've thought about how to change the rules or or, um, or make them more flexible. But it's just not in favour of migrants. It's in favour of the people they're forcing to do immigration enforcement. Um Which I think is incredibly concerning and tells us a lot about how much we'll have to be pushed for now, but also post—you know—sort of strange to say, but if there is a post-post coronavirus world, um, post (laughs) pandemic.
0: Yeah, that is that is fascinating, and I suppose a lot of our listeners wouldn't be aware of the fact that, for example, if you're an immigrant in this country and you have uh, a status called no recourse to public funds, it means you're not eligible for any social security. Or most social security payments, so you would be unable to work and unable to have any money at all, which, like you said, drives you into destitution. And um, Maya, I'm interested in. So one of our listeners, uh, Andrew, who's an immigration lawyer, is telling us like many other things that you said, and about how the government's immigration system has become more restrictive over time. I know he mentioned that over the last five years, like the cost of immigration application themselves have doubled, and he tells me about all these. Uh, ridiculous amounts of charges and hidden charges you end up within the system. I suppose my question to you is: is why do you think the government has gone? or This government specifically um, has kind of gone down this road since it came into power, and by this I mean kind of the post twenty ten regime.
2: Yeah, I mean, I would actually locate that as um, as I would agree that it's really skyrocketed, but I would locate that problem slightly earlier in the New Labour years. There's, I mean, I explain it a bit in the book, but that's really where this kind of this charging came in in the way that we're seeing it now and I mean I think that um I think that it is really I think it means they can send a a message they can send a message to the public that they're being tough on immigration that you're not going to get an easy ride if you come here and I think it's just a way for them to make money like the amount that they're making is absolutely huge we can guess right we don't actually know for sure because it's really difficult to um to pin this all down um but I think it's Part it is partly about this exuding this aura of toughness, and the the reason why I say that is there is sort of tentative research that um, has been talked about again in another home affairs. I think it was always oh, a health affairs select committee hearing. I think, um, uh, uh, and I can't remember exactly who said this. So if anyone wants to know, I will provide the reference. Um, but there was someone who was saying that. Um, there is evidence to suggest from some of the academic work that's been done on this, that, for instance, the health charging, the charges within the NHS, is costing more to have those carried out than is brought back in from the actual charging itself. And so we have to, I guess we have to kind of break it down in terms of what charges we're thinking about. So with that one, I think it's really exceeding the aura of toughness. And with a lot of the charging, you know, having forcing people to pay for like, English tests, um, pay for email replies, which is something that people have to do. If you want to reply by email about your immigration um your case, it's gonna cost you around five pounds. Um but then these absolutely huge fees for processing. I think it's just a way for them to to bring to get more money. And I think they know they can do it because people are desperate and people wanna find a way to regular regularize their status or ensure they're able to stay in the country. And so I I think it's really appalling way of conducting things and they could really reduce the fees uh, by a significant amount and there may be a stage at which they're forced to do that given like in a post-Brexit world where they'll want more people to come to this country if immigration numbers reduce.
0: Mm. I'm thinking about kind of because I think one thing we've seen especially with the the change immigration surcharge the ways in which kind of public opinion can shift on immigration how it can cause changes in policy as well like questions like how do you think the how do you see at the, moment the British public viewing immigration as a whole and what do you think determines that
2: um it's a very good question and I have to confess um that I I mean this might sound a bit um it may sound a bit uh a bit uh, a bit contradictory or like a bit illogical to say but I'm I'm less concerned with public opinion in the. I think that that it's there's a limited amount that we could read from public opinion polling. I'm not that isn't to say that it's entirely useless, but I think I'm very very skeptical of the way that public opinion polling has been used in general, but in particular in relation to immigration. Um, yeah. In the often it feels or it seems like you know I'm not in the room when these conversations are happening or these decisions are made, so I can only guess. But it feels often like politicians will hold focus groups, will look at public opinion polling on things like immigration, and then they will sort of act accordingly as opposed to looking at it and thinking, oh, this maybe indicates something about hostility towards immigration, how can we challenge it? And I think we want to be really careful to say that, um, although I'm not an expert with polling, and I I, I don't think it's entirely useless, but it's not what I'm I'm arguing, which is often what people think I'm arguing, um, I think we want to be really cautious and think that it's often a snapshot Snapshot of a particular section of people at a time that tells us something, but it, it, there are limits to it in terms of like how the questions are asked um, and it, it, what time this is being asked and um, who's being asked. Although I know there's a, a sort of a science to it, um, and so, but so having said all of that, there <laughs> a but. Like to answer your question, I guess there are shifts, and quite a lot of people have written about this. There are there are shifts in public opinion and um, people are the kind of hostility towards immigration is shifting people have a more positive view on immigration both on the economy but also this idea of quote unquote culture that maybe we'll talk about later um and what for me that for me what i find useful about that is that one of the things that we've been told for a very 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 long time mm-hmm. is it anti-immigration sentiment is an inevitability when you have too much immigration of a certain kind, with certain kind obviously being incredibly loaded and incredibly racialized um, term. Um, and i think that these shifts in public opinion tell us that that isn't true and what ha- what you can see is these moments of crisis and this was happening a bit before um the pandemic but particularly now where there's been this narrative around key workers and recognizing that a lot of key workers are actually migrants it shifts how people understand movement and how people understand people in the, coming to the uk but like looping back to how i started mm-hmm. um I'm I have some skepticism about that because I think we also need to challenge the underlying myths around immigration to really have like deep systemic change around how people understand movement and how people how immigration is legislated for and I'm really happy to be proved wrong on that but it's just my kind of approach to it is is good if there's shift in public opinion but if you want that to be long term if you want that to be like uh, produce societal change you also need to look at the anti-immigration arguments that are being made tackle them head on and then like you know do that throughout society um as opposed to thinking that it's just going to automatically kind of organically change itself
1: Uh, and my so you mentioned like how public opinion might have shifted during this pandemic I found that quite interesting so like we see people like Piers Morgan all of a sudden speaking about how much he loves migrants and you know, he's talking about the contributions migrants have made to British society during this pandemic. And in the book, I think you do a really good job of presenting like the problematic rhetoric on immigration as not like a right or left wing thing, but like both parties have been culpable in framing migrants in the wrong way in approaching immigrant immigration policy in the, in the incorrect way. So for example, when Miliband and the Labour Party in 2015, they go into that, that, um, 2015 general election campaign you know with mugs um saying controls and immigration you know we have the gordon brown and gillian duffy moment which was you know quite a a big moment for for gordon brown during that campaign Mm -hmm. and yeah i guess i would like to get your thoughts on the role both parties have played in, in contributing to this rhetoric so like labor and and conservatives and maybe some thoughts on the Labour Party now under, under Keir Starmer and, and what you think they could do in terms of maybe changing the rhetoric on, on immigration or what their general approach to immigration policy will be?
2: Yeah, um, I think that's a really good question. Um, I suppose part of the aim of the book was to sort of, it's sort of to talk to um, like the left, is like maybe think about that in its broader sense, um, in the Um, one of the things I was really struck by uh, right after the EU referendum was quite a lot of politicians, Labour politicians, one in particular, Andy Burnham, I really recall, and I think I say it in the book, saying, you know, there's a real risk that this um, referendum and leaving the EU turns Britain into a country it has never been before, like hostile, inward looking. And whilst we definitely don't want to recognize the really specific forms of like racism and discrimination that were produced during that moment and are still being produced like think about the spike of hate crimes think about the the maybe long-term material um uh like inequalities that will come out of that or may come out of that I think it's really puzzling to have someone say it will turn Britain into a place that has never been before Like, you really don't know your own history is all I could think. And when I'm saying your own history, I don't just mean British history, you know, thinking about Britain's history of colonialism and of empire, but also the Labour Party's history. And so I was really really, uh, keen to try to unpack both how the Conservatives and the Labour Party at different times and in different ways had reproduced a lot of this really negative thinking on immigration. And you can see this way back in, you know, I say way back in history, it depends like what kind of historian you are, I guess. But you can see this, um you can see this in the 60s, for instance. Um, the 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which was introduced by a Labour government, is an incredibly racist piece of legislation. And so you think about Labour politicians saying, you know this will turn Britain into a place it's never been before you only need to look back a few into a few decades in your own party's history to see you pushing through this legislation that was really about race was really about making it more difficult for people of color to come to the UK and so I think when we're looking at I think we need to draw distinctions between how the conservatives and labor at different times and distinctly from one another have have kind of reproduced anti-immigration logics but it sort of falls into two for me overlapping categories one is like the economic, so this idea that migrants come take jobs are bad for the public purse they are the people who are at once taking your nursing job at the same time as they're apparently in the first the the queue for the nhs and undermining the health service right so you kind of have this contradictory argument about what migration is doing for the economy i totally reject that argument um, but there's another which is like sort of framed as cultural, but is also very much really about race. Culture in a lot of ways is is functioning as a proxy for race, where both Labour and Tory politicians at different points in time have talked about immigration undermining like British culture, making people feel uncomfortable about their area or about their sense of self in the country. And... It was very important for me to, to 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 look at how not only the conservatives and not only the far right, um, to the National Front, or more recently thinking about, um, parties like UKIP were doing that, but actually how the Labour Party, like, it, in quite a broad way, was also complicit in that. And I'm quite in- interested in, and I talk about, um, you know, the trade union movement as well, the labour movement within that, um, and so. The things you referenced are really good examples. Ed Miliband's a very good example. The Mugs is a really good example of that. Gordon Brown is a very good example of that. Um, And very recently, a lot of people were saying it was the anniversary, the 10-year anniversary, I think, of that Gillian Duffy moment. And a lot of people I saw on social media saying, oh, you know, Gordon Brown was right. She was a bigot. Um, If only the media hadn't lambasted him. And for me, that sort of missed the point, because the point for me with that moment was that, oh gordon brown was willing to say that in a car behind what he thought was closed doors but he was also willing to talk about british jobs british workers and so it's a really mis- it's a it's a misunderstanding of what was actually happening because what was happening is new labour were in particular ways reproducing anti immigration discourses Gordon Brown included, and then they say, "Oh, this bigoted woman." Then he says, "This bigoted woman." Like the the two things for me, I don't know Gillian Duffy, so I don't, you know, I don't know about her. But the two things are are connected in a way, um, and so I think for Keir Star Labour's Keir Starmer, we'll really wait, have to wait and see. They've done some good stuff around campaigning around um, the surcharge, but I would want them to push that further, as a lot of backbench MPs like Bell, Ribeiro or Addy have been doing, and um, to say that that surcharge needs to go for everyone. Um, And, you know, I would quite like to see them really pushing for an end to the hostile environment, which is something that was in the last manifesto, something that Bell, or Adi, who I mentioned, who was shadow immigration minister until for a short period of time until Keir Starmer came in, um, something that Diane Abbott, the former shadow home secretary, is pushing for, ending the hostile environment. And one of my concerns with Labour, um, generally and now, is that they will continue to sort of do this thing of, pandering on public opinion and not really being willing to challenge a lot of the underlying myths that I talked about before. And it may be that they sort of go for a line that says we need to bring more, we need to allow more refugees to come into the country, which is true. Like I 100% agree with that. But whilst doing that, go for a much harder line on immigration. That's one thing they could do, given Keir Starmer's sort of background, like the bits and pieces that's been said about this before he was a leader. But it's very hard to say it. This is that's just my hunch at the moment that that's like something to potentially be concerned about or watch out for
0: if if for a moment we could take the kind of devil's advocate position and take what would be I don't know the the traditional labor line of immigration that would say people do have quote unquote legitimate concerns about about migration and large influxes of migrants from countries that are less similar to the uk in terms of of education and outlook have caused disruption. So they would say, "Well, after the Syrian refugee crisis, a huge influx of migrants has led to the rise of the far right." Uh, the same in in Germany as well. What would you say to those people? And also, I suppose, do you think that people ever do have uh, legitimate concerns about the number of migrants coming?
2: Um. So, short answer is no. <laughs> I don't think there are legitimate concerns. Um, and I really hate that. There's a chapter in the book called "The Jim." I really hate that phrase because that phrase is used as a cover for like not interrogating what's actually going on when people say they don't like immigration. It's just kind of giving people a free pass and not really engaging with it. And I, I don't think um, interrogating it. The thing that is often said to me is, "Oh, you just want to call everyone racist." Um, and I don't think that's really any you know any any work from any like s- scholars way better than me on race. No one ever really seems. Like, they just want to say, oh, the population's racist, end of. Like, the aim is often to unpick and challenge how race is manifesting, where it's coming from, and do something about that. That's how, how I read it, at least. Um and I would just really reject that it is that it is refugees or people moving into the country that are the cause of the rise of the far right it's something that Hillary Clinton sort of implied um like maybe last year um you know saying that uh, refugees coming to Europe was the reason why like in countries like you reference like Germany and why parties like the AFD are doing well I think that's a total misreading of, of what has happened in terms of like the sort of complicity I've mentioned of re- the reproduction of this anti-immigration sentiment across the spectrum can't be taken out of that picture and it almost implies this thing that I mentioned before that anti-immigration feeling is a natural reaction to too many immigrants well I would defer to um a much you know I would I would defer to Paul Gilroy on this who talks about conviviality um and Paul Gilroy's reference to conviviality and understanding of conviviality at least how I have understood it is really really helpful I think here in that people are getting along living like alongside one another they're like falling in love they're falling out they're having families together across these supposedly insurmountable differences that we're told exist and so yeah there are major there are major things that have to be done like it's, I'm not saying it's easy to unpick anti-immigration feeling in the UK um but to treat it as an inevitability and to sort of for me that argument ends up being a victim blaming one as well it's like oh refugees are to blame for the rise of the parties that hate them like I don't, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a helpful way through which to understand what has happened. Like it's, yeah, I think that that's the argument that's often made, but actually these, these, this thinking is produced, It is constructed and it's, it's being reproduced all the time and it's not an inevitability. And so I think that for me, like what we do about that, I think is really complicated, but the starting point is different for me than what some of the some of the literature says on this, and what's certainly a lot of our politicians say on this.
1: And Maya, so over the last week we've seen loads of protests both here and in the US following the the murder of George Floyd by a police officer, and this has brought to the fore conversations about how race and racism operates in the US and in the UK. So I often think in the UK we're very concerned with these individual acts of prejudice, right? So we're very focused on you know someone these very blatant manifestations of racism and we often see systemic racism as an american problem so we see this kind of institutional thing we don't really, we don't really believe they exist. these institutional systemic problems exist in the in the uk i'm of the opinion that that would require a complete misreading of the sort, sort of british history because whiteness and racism were very central to the british empire to sort of colonialism and therefore that means for me in my opinion that racism is embedded in the fabric of british society But I I guess it'd be nice to hear from you what you think about, you know, how race and racism operates in the UK and and in the US and the the differences.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a really good question in terms of the differences. And I am like definitely not the authority on comparing the two. Um, But I would say that given that we have... Given that we're having we're having this discussion, um, like on the day after Boris Johnson was asked about this in Parliament, um, and he said something like, "This is not a direct quote." He said something like, "He was asked about um, uh, he was asked about the protests in in the US and in the UK," and he he said something like, "Black Lives Matter," and then at some point said, "But of course, all lives matter." Some kind of j- like jumbled res- response. Um, And there've been a number of conservative politicians that have sort of come out to say in some way or another, Black Lives Matter. And I think that, like, we sort of need to, like, I'd be interested to know what you both think about this as well, but I feel like we need to probe beneath the surface of that a bit in that, like, Boris Johnson is a politician who, like, I don't want to just individualise it because as you say, Mike, it's, this is systemic but like he is a politician who has made political capital out of making racist statements like about um muslims about black people about immigrants um and so it, it seems like really it seems very hypocritical to me that we he would then stand there in, in in the chamber and say this um say this about what's going on at this particular moment but like you say Thinking about this systemically is really important. And it's often that in the UK, we look over America or certain people look over America and say, things are so bad there. or oh, it's so awful. Um, when we know in the UK according to the Institute of Race Relations between 1991 and 2014 509 black minority ethnic people were um died in police custody there's been not a single conviction you need to take a really quick glance at what some of that looks like the death murder of Jimmy Mubenga who was sitting on a on a plane waiting to be deported um forced deportation uh and there were reports at the time that people around him when he was being restrained heard him saying, I can't breathe. Like the the similarities, the parallels are painfully painfully and depressingly obvious there. Um, but there's so many people. You have Joyce Gardner, Mark Duggan, Sarah Reed, Sean, Sean Rigg. I really think people in the UK need to get to grips with that history if they're going to start talking about um, the US. But I mean, in terms of, I, I guess I, I'm interested to know what both of you think in terms of the comparisons that can be drawn. Um, and also, if this, to me, this moment feels slightly different from before um, and I don't know if that's me wanting to be like hopeful about the potential change uh, that can come in from absolutely abhorrent circumstances. Um, but yeah, I, I wonder what you see as the similarities and differences, and yeah, what 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 if any hope you have that this will produce some kind of meaningful change?
0: I think that like I think I'd say three things. Actually, one of which is that it's like you say we're only now becoming getting to grips with the level of of race-based violence in the UK and the idea in the way that ethnic minorities are treated by law and order and by politicians and that also includes uh, the thoughts of kind of the statements of Boris Johnson I would say going on from that I mean we just we don't have the same history of racism and also there's a sense in which racism is slightly different here and I'm speaking kind of personally as a British Asian but I've always thought that one of the reasons I've encountered relatively little racism is because I look brown, but I sound white, right? And I think the same thing is probably true of Rishi Sunak. And there's a sense in which if you speak the right way, you're accepted and it's okay. And there are other groups who definitely face a lot more discrimination that I'm I, i I'm aware of that I don't understand. And then I think the third thing I would say is that maybe I'm a bit of a glass half full optimist kind of guy. But when I hear Boris Johnson say, Black Lives Matter. And I I appreciate the second part of that sentence. But isn't there something like um, hypocrisy is the tribute vice pays to virtue, right? Like, there's a sense in which now the standard you're being held up to is, well, what do you think about violence against African-Americans in the United States? How do you think this is unacceptable? And that's the way in which the public opinion and mood shifts. And what about you, Mike? What do you reckon? I mean,
1: I guess I would say what we see in America are just more extreme manifestations of what happens here. So we do see deaths in police custody in the UK. We do see the same systemic issues in the UK. We see in the US. We just see far more extreme manifestations of those. And I, I think to tackle racism in the UK, we need to really, really look, take a big look, long look at our history. You know, racism is embedded in the fabric of British society. We know this is because of the British Empire, which placed whiteness at the fore, and. Britain's very uncomfortable in terms of you know looking back at its history what Britain likes to do is you know likes to wear the label of being the least racist nation we need to take a big long look at our history and actually understand our history and how it plays into what we see today um but I have been slightly heartened by the process I think it does feel a bit different like Black Lives Matter seems to really, really caught fire now and yeah I, I do feel really, really heartened by, by some of the those, this, this does affect like real change, and we do start viewing racism through a very different lens. So stop focusing on these individual acts of prejudice, and actually focus on the systemic issues. And I guess to close, might be nice to, to get your thoughts. Are you feeling heartened about you know the, the, the recent protests we've seen, and can can, can this awaken us maybe to, to the plight faced by by minorities and, and black people in the UK and in, and in the US?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's really hard to know what, like li- like being in this particular moment, it's so hard to know. And it's so, and especially because we're all sort of semi-isolated in some way or another because of coronavirus. But I agree with you. It 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 feels like there is like a, a real, like there was a power with it already. Um, like I don't want to do down what has already happened, but it really feels like very powerful. Like seeing so many young people out and seeing so many people Like just refusing to accept this anymore, like refusing to accept the same old arguments and the same old debates that are had. Um, And so, I really hope that it does. I think it's really difficult, and it's really gonna—we're really gonna have to fight for it in a a big way. Um, But yeah, I think I do—I do feel hopeful that 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 there is the kind of strength of feeling, um, like in the UK, in the US, and elsewhere, about this and about challenging this um, in a really meaningful way.
0: Uh, thanks a lot for for listening, everybody. And um, it's been a great conversation, Maya. It's been a really fascinating discussion to get your insight, and obviously, Mike, you as well. I mean, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. Uh, and also, make sure you do read read Mike's book, Mike's book, Mike's article. Listener question, guys: If you guys have any questions about politics or things you want us to cover in future weeks, do get in touch, and we will cover it in a future episode. Uh, That seems like as good a place to leave it as any. But before we go, uh, Maya, what's our jam of the week this week for Alistair's? listeners?
2: Oh, yeah. Thanks. And thank you both for having me. It's really, yeah, really interesting discussion and really, like, interesting questions that I'm still going to be thinking about afterwards. Um, And I chose something that I've been listening to a lot, which is, like, now a few years old, but I've I've gone with Lizzo, Truth Hurts.
1: Oh, yes. That's a good
0: I've never heard this.
1: Anyway. Jeevan, where oh, have you been?
2: We've <laughs> been on loop for the past like month, so I thought I'd bring everyone else into the party.
0: Oh, wonderful. Well, I think that's us signing off, guys. Uh, thanks a lot for listening to us. Thank you, guys.
2: Thanks.